0: You are listening. You are listening listening to the Fly Fishing '97 podcast.
1: Eight years later, ten years later, um, my brother's like, "Yeah, we're gonna go to Alaska. You should come up with us." And uh, so I came up and was just sitting on their porch, and they're like, "Hey, what are you doing next year? You want to come up and guide?" I was like, "Yeah, sure. Why not?" So. I basically sold everything, uh, flew to Alaska, didn't have a vehicle or anything. I had a, a, a suitcase and a duffel bag and, uh, you know, wound up, you know, taking the guide school and, and guided for them for two years. Um, eventually, I was able to save up money and buy a boat and a vehicle. And, uh, you know, the natural progression with, um, you know, like guiding is that you, know, you work for somebody. And then you, you kinda make like the you know, the, the young kid money, you know, the you know, the eighteen to twenty five year old where you just you don't mind living in the back of a car and you don't mind making, you know, basically ten bucks an hour and uh but when you get serious about it, you realize you have to have your own business in order to make it your your kind of life and career. Um and I knew that when I when I moved up here, as soon as I saw the place, as soon as I started, you know, rowing boats and in in you know, showing people how to fish and all that and kind of sharing those experiences with people. I kind of knew that was what I ultimately wanted to do.
0: Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry.
1: The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate.
0: Well, the top 10 cities for downloads on the podcast this week. Thanks, folks, for listening in Barcelona, Spain, Pensacola, Florida. Austin, Texas, uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, Edmonton, Alberta, York Haven, PA, Penticton, BC, Frankfurt, Germany, Mannheim, Germany, and Boise, Idaho. Top 10 cities this week. Up next, we've got Dave Lisi. Dave is out of Cooper Landing, Alaska. He's a fishing guide up there. Started in upstate New York, went to school in Virginia. Big time lacrosse player decided, you know what, I'm going to go and chase my dreams and chase a lot of big fish up north in Alaska. So he'll tell us some some crazy stories about uh, moving up there and living in a wall tent in the middle of bear country and starting up a guide service after a couple years working uh, for another service. But I think you'll get a kick out of this. Uh, that's Dave Lisi coming up next.
1: Hey, everyone. This is Nate from theflycrate.com. I just wanted to thank you again for listening to the podcast and want to let you know about our new membership option called the mix and match subscription. This is for people who don't want us to hand curate a selection of flies for you, but you would rather choose a hundred percent of what you receive each and every month. And you'll be able to figure out whether or not this is a good membership for you, but it's a great way to save money. Go to the flycrate.com and
0: find the icon with the $30 store credit. We want to welcome to the program, Dave Lacy. Now Dave is with Cooper landing fishing guide in Cooper Landing, Alaska, specializing on the Kenai River and area. Dave, thanks so much for coming on the podcast tonight. Yeah, Mark, thanks so much for having me. So, before we get into your your guiding business, um kind of what you've been up to lately. Let I always like to go back to your roots and kind of figure out how you came to discover fly fishing in general. How did how did that journey start for you, Dave?
1: Well, I, I kind of you know, grew up in a, in a time when, you know, kids were still allowed to go outside, get kicked outside until you, uh, until it gets dark. And the only rule was just don't die or fall in the river. So, uh, my, you know, parents let me, uh, I, you know, I used to do a lot of spin fishing in New York, uh, for walleye and bass and things like that. And I'd always had a fly rod, um, and started kind of, you know, messing around with it here and there, you know, when I was probably 10, 11 years old, um, and then I really, really got into it. Actually, in college, of all places, um, I studied uh, environmental conservation, law enforcement, and one of the one of the classes I took was actually fly fishing. So uh, ended up, you know, spending a weekend on a river with this class, and you know, really fell in love with it there. And you know, kind of chasing, you know, kind of the the, the pseudo anadromous fish of the Great Lakes. You know, the the steelhead and the salmon that are that are planted there. And uh, you know, then I really started getting into different methods of, of chasing those guys, you know, with like, you know, two-handed rods and whatnot. And, uh, so that's kind of where, you know, I really got really deep into it, I would say.
0: So walk me down that journey. So how does a guy from upstate New York end up in Alaska? That's, there's gotta be a story involved there.
1: There really is. So (laughs) I, uh, real random journey. So I ended up, um, You know, at the time I was actually living in West Virginia, going back to school, getting my master's, coaching college lacrosse, um, had already, you know, had a business, sold it, uh, kind of, you know, I'd worked for a fortune 500 company, had done kind of, you know, been coaching lacrosse, doing, doing stuff like that. And, um, kind of wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. And, uh, just so happened that a guy from Cooper landing, Alaska, where I, I live and work now, uh, was in syracuse new york visiting his brother and so his brother and my brother are really good friends and it just happened to be this guy's wedding and so my brother's at the wedding talking to mike and uh says hey yeah my brother's coming up tomorrow you should come out and go fishing with us you know and so mike you know is a fishing guide up here and so you know we get we get talking exchanging you know fish stories and whatnot on the river and he's like hey you know if you're ever in alaska come on up and I had no idea anything about Alaska. I mean, I you know, kind of knew about the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia and all that, and but I never really knew much about Alaska. So I kind of brushed it off and was sort of like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. And it had to be probably, gosh, I don't know, like maybe eight years later, 10 years later, um, my brother's like, yeah, we're, we're going to go to Alaska. You should come up with us. And uh, so I came up and was just sitting on their porch and they're like, Hey, what are you doing next year? You want to come up and guide? I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? So <laughs> I, I basically sold everything, uh, flew to Alaska, didn't have a vehicle or anything. I had a, a, a suitcase and a duffel bag and, uh, you know, wound up, you know, taking the guide school and, and guided for them for two years. Um, eventually it was able to save up money and buy a boat and a vehicle. And, uh, you know, the natural progression with, um, you know, like guiding is that, you know, you work for somebody and then you, you kind of make like the, you know, the, the young kid money, you know, the, you know, the 18 to 25 year old where you just, you don't mind living in the back of a car and you don't mind making, you know, basically 10 bucks an hour. And, uh, but when you get serious about it, you realize you have to have your own business in order to make it your, your kind of life and career. Mm -hmm. Um, and I knew that when I, when I moved up here, as soon as I saw the place, as soon as I started, you know, rowing boats and, and, in in you know, showing people how to fish and all that and, and kind of sharing those experiences with people. I kind of knew that was what I ultimately wanted to do. That's wild. And you know what,
0: you, it sounds like you made it yours. You re, that, Talk about that leap of faith. Like, you know, the, that's got to take a little bit of faith to make a move like that.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Especially considering the day that I flew in, uh, the folks I was going to be staying with were sending me pictures of my my new, uh, wall tent that they were going to put me up in for the season. So, uh, yeah, talk about a leap of faith. I I went up there, you know, came up to Alaska, not even really knowing where I was going to live or anything, ended up living in a soft sided wall tent in the heart of bear country. So (laughs) if that that doesn't puck you up at night, (laughs) I don't know what does. uh,
0: Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we, uh, before we jump too much further, I'd like to ask you a few kind of rapid fire questions, get to know you a little bit. You ready for that? Sure.
1: Sure, go for it. All
0: right. Now, so when you're on your way to the river, now you may just be walking, I don't know, but if you're taking a truck and you got some music on, what kind of tunes you listen to? Uh,
1: I listen to a wide variety of music. I used to jokingly say I'd listen to everything but country, but I do listen to a little bit of country. Um, Yeah, I I will listen to a lot of kind of reggae, which is kind of strange, but also Mm -hmm. even like Post Malone, you know, I'm almost 40, but I'm still kind of like teetering on the edge of, you know, kind of a wannabe kid still. So I I try to pretend like I know what music's cool.
0: (laughs) I I totally, I get that. (laughs) One go-to fly pattern that you cannot live without.
1: Uh, One go-to fly pattern. It's selfishly one that I actually came up with. Um, I called it Dave's Panic Button. It's like a little streamer, um, kind of like a smolt or young salmon pattern. I don't know, for whatever reason, that thing, I, I trust that thing no matter what day of the year it is. It's kind of crazy.
0: I love the name.
1: <laughs> it's <Thank you>. Panic. <laughs> <button>. <laughs> it really I, was the panic button. I actually, uh, I, I have this habit of, you know, ha- you know, having a fly in my head that I'll tie and I'm, you know, I, I might tie one of them. Right. And then I'll mm. take it the next day and try it with clients, you know, and then if it works, it's like, cool. But then if I lose it, I have no idea what I, what it looked like. So, um, <laughs> but this particular fly was a really tough day of fishing and I just happened to put it on a kid's rod and he caught a fish right away. And I was like, well, I guess, uh, <laughs> I guess we'll call it the panic button. Cause I was kind of in a panic of trying to catch a fish, you know?
0: Well, when it's your, when it's your, you know, how you make a living, uh, that makes oh, yeah. a lot of sense. <laughs> I, and I got to admit, I'm bad for that too. I tie, I tie a lot of one-offs and, and sometimes I don't even try them. And, I, and like you say, if you don't have it in your hand, you can't remember how you made totally. that thing. Totally. Totally. Favorite place to talk fly fishing. Now, is there a place in Cooper Landing that maybe there's a coffee shop or a fly shop? Maybe it's at the lodge. I don't know, a watering hole. Where do you get your fix to talk fly fishing?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I always look forward to the early mornings, you know, showing up and it's kind of, you know, foggy and cold and no one's around. It's me getting my boat ready. Then my guide buddies show up. And and Cooper Landing is kind of neat because there's kind of a contingency of probably like 60 to 80 guides that all know each other really well. And for the most part, we all get along and there's sort of like that old boys club that, uh, I was lucky to weasel my way into, but I always look forward to, you know, shooting the breeze with guys in the morning. And, uh, they're always looking at my fly box, trying to steal my flies. But, uh, you know, just, just those mornings and even afternoons after you get off the water, just kind of doing the breakdown with, with other guides. I think that's a, that's a cool, cool part of the job. Absolutely. So,
0: let's talk sports for a minute. So, yep. uh, I know, uh, growing up in, in New York state, you're, uh, I'm assuming there's gotta be some either Rangers, uh, loyalties, maybe some devils, maybe, maybe let's talk, uh, are we talking jets giants? Who's your go-to
1: in sports? Uh, believe it or not, Buffalo bills, you know, kind of in that Western New York, the, the forgotten football right. team, really. Yeah, so got Buffalo it. bills, you know, even like, uh, you know, Buffalo sabers, of course. um, but of course, growing up in the 90s, I always had that, you know, I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I didn't realize I was jumping on the bandwagon of like the, the Green Bay Packers, you know, so I was always a Packers fan. Um, but yeah.
0: So we've established you like snowy football games.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs>
0: makes sense. You're in Alaska. <laughs> uh, just curious. No, So you were a lacrosse guy, too, were you not? Growing up. Uh,
1: yeah, I was. It was something I played probably from the time I was in elementary school, you know, when we had recess, um, we would actually, everyone would bring their lacrosse stick and basically play keep away all recess. Um, so yeah, it was just something that just was sort of ingrained in kind of what you do. It was like football is in Texas. You just kind of grow up playing lacrosse in New York.
0: Hmm. Yeah. That's a, that, well, that's a pretty darn tough sport. I can't think of much tougher than that. Oh yeah. Biggest lesson that you've learned on your fly fishing journey, is there a takeaway that kind of has stuck with you on this whole uh, trip.
1: Yeah, I think the, the what I, well, what I've kind of overall learned, and I'm starting to learn, is that uh, you know I used to be really really obsessed about trying to be out there every day and fish 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 hard, and I would always get kind of like territorial almost, you know, especially if I'm fun fishing, like oh man, there's people on the water, ah, get out of here. Now it's like I'm learning to share the river and kind of take a step back and um, you know just. Just not be so aggro about uh, about the river and things like that. Um, but when it comes to you know working with people, um, I think the, the coolest part is is that I still basically get to fish because I'm fishing pretty much vicariously through people. But also, it's it's, it's really neat because uh, I get to show them you know something that I love, and they get to catch a fish on a style that they may not be used to. A lot of people that come up have never fly fish before, so it's really neat to see that. Um, but I think the biggest overall lesson with all that is just that, uh, it's kind of a sport that's meant to be shared and kind of, you know, you know, to speak kind of generically, it's almost like, you know, to, or, you know, kind of sentimentally, um, you know, something that's, it's, it's nice to pass along and pass down. And I'm really starting to enjoy that, that, uh, as I grow in the sport. Yeah. Amen to
0: that. I think, you know, that, that to me is kind of the maturation of a fly fisher in general. Like you start out, you're all in, you just want to fish, 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 fish. But when you start seeing it through other people's eyes and you start wanting to help other people and you just said something there that when you take a step back, that is really hard for somebody to do. That's just all, you got fish on the brain. You just want to get that line wet. And it's just, sometimes you just got to kind of sit back and that is not easy.
1: Yep. <laughs> Especially when the clients are like, Hey, uh, jump out here and show us how it's done. It's like, "Oh, nah. I mean, the last thing you want to do is catch a, a fish in front of someone and, and you know, surely they say they like it. But, then, you know, I'm sure in the back of their head, they're kind of a little perturbed. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I really enjoy that, you know, just kind of watching people, you know, watching their faces kind of light up and, uh, you know, and, you know, share memories. Because Alaska is kind of one of those places where I'm sure a lot of, you know, lot, much like British Columbia, where when people come to visit, it's to me, it's like, gosh, it might be the first time they've ever been there or the last time they'll ever be there or the only time they'll ever be there. Um, so I really take that into consideration every time I'm out of the water.
0: How important is it for you to kind of connect with your, your client? Like, I mean, I would imagine you get people from every single walk of life, uh, you know, whether they're, bankers or lawyers or, or plumbers or what, whatever they're doing what they're doing. And I'm sure you get all different personality types. Speak to that a little bit. How important is that for a guy to be able to connect with, with just about everybody?
1: Yeah. So, so luckily having my own business, you know, I get to basically talk to people from the time they call or, or the first time that they book all the way, you know, to the time we meet and fish and then also, you know, after the trip. So it, you know, and I, it, it sounds also, you know, kind of corny, but, uh, but I really feel like people become our friends and, you know, we build that trust and rapport and I, you know, try my best to, um, to be upfront and honest with people as far as like fishing conditions and, you know, even offer them other things to do in the area with really not expecting anything in return. And um, yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of neat because you can kind of really start building that relationship from the time you, you know, that you take that first phone call until, until you're, A lot of times I'll send pictures to people at the end of their trip. So, you know, I'll even have people even to this day that I've, you know, guided, you know, five, six, seven years ago that are, they'll text and they'll call and they'll, you know, just see how things are going. They'll be commenting on Facebook, you know, pictures and all that. So, uh, so yeah, they become more like, more like friends and, you know, and, uh, family even. So
0: I would imagine that that really lends itself to repeat business too, because those people want to come back and spend time. Yeah, yeah
1: for sure. Absolutely.
0: Good stuff. When when you're not fly fishing, you are usually doing what?
1: Yeah, so I uh, I kind of got obsessed with building the business. Um, You know, so we kind of built our business all by ourselves. You know, we built the website. We do a lot of YouTube videos um, and social media and things like that. So I really spend a lot of time building the business and you know, kind of marketing and things, um, which kind of sounds like not fun, but it it is actually pretty fun for me. Um, You know, we do a lot of uh, hiking, hunting you know, in the area. Um, yeah, those kinds of things.
0: We're chatting today with Dave Lisi, uh Cooper Landing Fishing Guide out of Cooper Landing, Alaska. Uh, we're going to get to the great fishing in your neck of the woods and how people uh, kind of look you up and, and get a trip with you. But first, I, I want to learn a little bit about who influenced you as far as whether it's guiding or fly fishing in general, if you had to pick a a couple of
1: influences on your, on your
0: fishing, who would you look to?
1: I think, uh, the first person that comes to mind is, uh, Lonnie Waller. Um, you know, great steelhead angler, you know, kind of the probably the father of modern fly fishing for steelhead, um, British Columbia. Well, I think, is he American? I think he's in British Columbia, but, uh, so he, you know, not only just an amazing, you know, you know, he was using barbless hooks back in, you know, back in the day before anyone even, and, you know, letting steelhead go before it was cool. And, um, you know, great conservationist, but also just a really, really, really outstanding author. If you ever have a chance to read anything by Lonnie Waller, it'll blow your mind away, especially if you, (laughs) if you ever want to be a writer, you'll see like, wow, like he's just a really, really good writer. So he sets the bar high in that respect. Um, and there's a lot of other guys, you know, especially in the you know kind of like spay casting wor- world that you sort of look up to, like Tom Larimer, those kinds of guys. Um, but I would say mostly guys uh, who pretty unselfishly just give, you know, their knowledge, whether it's through, um, you know, you know lessons, you know, online stuff, uh, articles, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I would say those 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 folks for sure.
0: Good stuff. Good stuff. You got to tell us about the. Kenai River and now walk us through that what does that look like why is it so special and what kind of fish are you chasing it's kind of give us a little uh, lesson on the Kenai
1: yeah so the Kenai River it's about an 80 mile river you know all no dams or anything It's, it's a really cool system where it basically comes almost directly off of a glacier so you have this this snow river which runs into Kenai Lake which which is a huge lake. It's like 25 miles long and uh, like six 800 feet deep. Um, and then that eventually becomes the Kenai River here in Cooper Landing. And then that dumps into another lake, Skilak Lake, which is another giant 22 mile long lake and six 800 feet deep. And then it becomes kind of what we call the middle Kenai River, which then becomes the, the lower, um, which becomes much bigger, wider, deeper down in that region. So it's a very diverse river as far as you know, up here in Cooper landing, we're, we're settled in the mountains. It's a little bit narrow, narrower river, you know, it's fast, it's shallow, it's cold. Um, you know, it's kind of kind of got that aquamarine kind of green bluish color, the glacial silt color, mm. um, kind of like the Skeena I, I would imagine looks, um, right. and you know, it's, uh, it became world famous, you know, in the eighties for King Salmon, um, because we, we were known as having the, the world record king salmon here it was like something like 98 pounds or something like that. Um, yeah, I and, remember that. Yeah. So that kind of became like the, you know, the big draw for the Kenai River, which, you know, they, they even had like a, a contest of like a million dollars if you break the world record or whatever. So it brought up and popularized really the lower Kenai River, which is like the town of Kenai and Soldotna. So that area really grew up you know, lodges, guides, you know, a lot of bait, a lot of gear, um, kind of king salmon and, and uh, su- uh, silver salmon fishing. Um, and then, kind of up here in Cooper Landing, it was more about like, you know, fly fishing for trout. There was a really big, you know, big contingency of fly anglers up here that, you know, were fishing for trout. And uh, some salmon species. And then eventually some of those guys started to sort of venture down towards the middle Kenai River and even the lower river and start fly fishing for trout. And they started discovering like, wow, there's like 30 inch plus rainbows down here. So, you know, they they kind of started spreading out. And uh, so the the fever has kind of grown. And then, you you know, then you get into sockeye salmon fishing. Um, And it's really probably one of the easiest accessed rivers, easiest um, access rivers on the uh, entire state of alaska because it's on the road system there's a lot of easy access for folks so if you wanted to come and you know drop a line in it's fairly easy especially during like the sockeye salmon fishing season um it's very diverse you know you can be a fly angler you can be a bait angler you can be a you know spin angler there's all different kinds of you know ways to do it um we we have you know rainbow trout dolly dolly varden Mm -hmm. um sockeye salmon you know chinook salmon of course uh silver salmon those are kind of the main species of course a huge run of pinks and so on even years so this year we will have about four million pink salmon that'll come up in the river which for us as trout anglers it really brings the biggest baddest rainbow trout around and and, you know a couple years back you know we caught like a 32 inch steelhead with some folks and some uh 30 inch plus rainbows you know all on the same trip and uh so it's a pretty exciting place because you honestly never know what you're going to have on the end of, end of your line
0: as somebody that does this for a living and gets so much out of it and brings so much to the, uh, to the sport. What's your favorite species to target? Like if you're on the Kenai, what are you happy to be throwing a line for?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, my most favorite is probably King salmon on a fly rod, you know, a two handed mm. fly rod is probably my most favorite. Um, because there's nothing like the pull from a, from a king salmon on a, on a spay rod, especially, you know, they, they kind of call them the, the fish of 10,000 cast, you know, so they're, they're fairly difficult to catch. But when you have one on, it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty epic battle. Um, and that's a pretty short window of, of opportunity for that, because the river, because it's glacially fed, as, the, as it gets warmer, the water goes up and up and up, makes it really hard to wade. So usually around that kind of like May to like mid to late June is a really good time for that. Um, but you'll find if I was out on the river, um, for the most part, I'm going to be swinging, you know, a two handed rod for rainbow trout, you know, anytime I can really, that's probably the most consistent thing I would do personally.
0: Now let's talk about fly patterns. So when you're fishing the Kenai for whether it be, uh, you know, some resident rainbows or even some steelhead or what what kind of patterns are you normally throwing for these, for these fish?
1: Yeah, so if uh, if the salmon aren't spawning, which of course, when the salmon are spawning, it's hard to to beat a little six or eight millimeter bead, <laughs> which some would argue is not fly fishing, but uh, we'll uh, we'll call it fly fishing. Um, <laughs> you know, so for like for resident rainbows, I really like to you know swing a lot of flies, and you can pretty much, quite honestly, you can swing little tiny nymphs all the way up to big giant four, six, eight inch long flesh flies or leech patterns. Um, we do have a, a population of um, lamp, freshwater lampreys. Um, so you can use really big gaudy patterns. You um, can even use things like little tiny flesh flies, which we, if folks don't know what that is, it's yeah. kind of a, a little fly that just resembles a chunk of salmon flesh in the water. Sure. Um, you can nymph, you can dry fly, you can swing you know, woolly buggers, you can cast and retrieve uh, for woolly buggers for trout which makes it really fun because you can you know if you have folks that are, are well versed in fly fishing if they're like hey let's let's try dry fly fishing or let's try swinging a nymph let's try swinging one of those old two-handed rods you know so you can really get creative and have fun especially for trout and dolly varden you know but when it comes to like salmon you know you know things like uh you know big uh, gaudy patterns for you know probably like six inch you know, basically intruders, like kind of beefed up steelhead flies for king salmon. Um, And then, you know, for silvers, silvers actually are a lot of fun. You can kind of, it's almost like flats fishing. You can go to some slack water, you can wade around and you can almost sight fish and cast and retrieve with a single hand rod, kind of use like big leech patterns or, you know, things like that. So are
0: those, those big northerns that get pretty, uh, pretty aerial as well?
1: Yeah, so they, they kind of are like the what they call the poor man steelhead. So they kind of get, um, you know, anywhere from six to twelve, fifteen pounds, and they, uh, they're really aggressive on the fly. You know, they're they're a very, you know, a sight predator in the ocean, and, and they only spend a year in the ocean. So they go from being you know three, four inches long to like, you know, twelve pounds in the ocean in a year. So they're very, very aggressive sight predators. So when you throw something in front of them, even though they're not eating in the river. They'll just chase down and hammer a fly, and it, it can be some of the most most fun fishing uh, you can have.
0: Let's talk color for those. Are you, are you in the purple, blue vein? What, what, what type of color patterns are you, f- you fishing for silvers?
1: Yeah, so I actually like uh, black and white, which is kind of crazy. Um, mm-hmm. Like I use a lot of Dalai Llamas. I started using those this year. Anything that kind of has a heavier head that can kind of jig for them and really give them that kind of like enticing action. But I've even used things like you know those pink prom dresses, which are kind of all flash. I've used those or well, chartreuse and pink, uh, black and purple. Um, The key there, though, I think, is just catching their eye and you're really trying to elicit that that chase and strike instinct that they have.
0: I'm going to ask you to put your artist hat on for a second, Dave. I want you to paint a picture. Okay, so this is this isn't for a client. This is for you. So when your perfect day kind of walk us through that when does it start in the morning or is it evening just walk us through it the species you're targeting and and, and describe the piece of water you'd be fishing
1: yeah i think my perfect day it, it almost always starts the night before um i'm kind of uh, you know when i teach like spay claves and thing, things i kind of teach about you know you know more on the fishing aspect of things and kind of really being prepared so i oftentimes will I'll have my rod ready for the situation, my sink tip on there that I know I'm going to use the fly. I know I'm going to use because I'm kind of like a little kid. I'll, you know, slam the trunk and run down to the water and (laughs) get set up as fast as I can. Um, but I, but I honestly think that, you know, chasing King salmon on the fly is probably my favorite thing to do. So I I think it would have to be chasing King salmon, maybe on the Kasilof river with a two handed rod. Um, and you know, that's the kind of river where it's, it's, it's fast and it's intimidating. Um, But I can tell you, and I'm, you know, I can tell you that, uh, you know, especially getting out there early in the morning before anybody comes, comes out and you can kind of see fish rolling, especially in some big distinct holes. And you, you know, some of those holes will honestly hold anywhere from five, six, seven, eight hundred fish. And it's just insane seeing them rolling and and jumping and porpoising. And, uh, you know, you kind of get into that methodical, you know, looking around, you know, uh, kind of cool, crisp morning, you know, with the eagles flying around, you kind of just you're swinging a fly and you don't even, you're not paying attention. And all of a sudden you got this big giant grab and it's uh, all hell breaks loose and uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing like putting your hands around the tail of a, of a, of a big King. And, uh, you know, even if it's, you're by yourself, I think it's a, a really special feeling, but, uh, but I like, you know, when someone's with me, you know, usually a good friend, um, you know, I would say that that's probably the most ideal someone to kind of share that experience with. Campfire at the end of the day, or what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, well, on that river, it's a pretty interesting takeout. So you kind of float down, fish, and then you you actually pull your boat out uh, through the mud on this crazy winch system. Not even a winch. You kind of attach this long, probably 200 foot cable to your boat. You attach your that cable to your trailer, then you drive up this crazy hill and pull your boat up to the top, and uh, <laughs> and all that. But uh, but yeah, the breakdown at the end. You know, kind of sitting around the boat talking about the day. I mean, there's nothing that beats that, especially, you know, when my, the guy I used to work for, Mike, uh, he was always so much fun to fish with. He was, he rarely could get out and fish, but the times that we got to fish together, it was some of the most epic because he just loves fishing, you know, loves kind of sharing the experience. And uh, even when I caught my personal best, you know, rainbow trout, you know, I had no one with me, but I had it on the line. And I, the first person I called was him and I got my phone in my ear and I'm reeling this thing in, and he's hearing the drag. And I was like, Mike, you'll never believe what I got on. I you know, and he's talking me through it, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I think that'd probably be my most ideal day would be to spend a day with him.
0: So when you've had an amazing day on the river after all that for big, giant kings, what are you sitting down to as a meal? And, and what's your beverage?
1: Meal? Uh, so, <laughs> gosh, I don't know. Maybe just a, a burger and – well, actually, no, prime rib from – it used to be called Sackett's, now it's two brothers in town they got really great prime rib so uh go get a little prime rib um i don't drink anymore uh probably uh water i know that's kind of bland but uh there you go <laughs> <laughs>
0: whatever works oh yeah that's good stuff that's uh that's a pretty good picture man i got to say at uh so t- talk to me about your season when it starts so when when should people be looking to get up to, uh, Cooper landing? Like what, when does the season start? When does it end? And, uh, kind of walk us through that a bit.
1: Yeah. So the big bulk of the season would kind of be what you would consider the, the touristy kind of season, you know, from June, July, and August, you know, when kids are out of school. Um, but quite honestly, you know, you could pretty much fish every day of the year, just depending on the regulations and all and your, you know, how, uh, how comfortable you are. But, uh, but you know, a lot of times people will be up for a convention, you know, and, December and if it's a decent day they'll be like hey let's go fishing tomorrow and if I'm prepared and licensed up and got the gear I will do it um but but you know the, what we really like to you know April time period can kind of be that kind of pre-spawn trout where like I know on the Kenai you, you know you can get out and swing some flies even you know drift and stuff like that um even people will come over and fish the Kenai then they'll go over to um Uh, King salmon Alaska and fish uh, fish on the knack River for uh, for big bows over there as well That's kind of like a niche kind of, you know, if you know about it, it's a good time It can be really cold. It can kind of be just like winter, Um, but it can also be pretty rewarding and fun Um, I will generally start my main guiding season in May um, Usually about May 15th and on I'll kind of start king salmon fishing in May Into June and then depending on folks I can trout fish I can kingfish you can sockeye salmon fish all the way through June, you know, come July, you can do trout, Dolly Varden, you know, sockeye salmon, king salmon, um, kind of, you know, kind of a big variety there. Um, my general policy is that, uh, I'll basically take people wherever I would go fun fishing for the day. If I had the day off, if it matches kind of their, what they want out of the experience. Um, and because there's really, you know, every time of year there's, there's some, something to fish for and there's a technique for it. And, uh, if it just happens to align with some folks, uh, you know, you can do it, you know, just like, you know, June and July, and even into August, you can dry fly fish, you can nymph, you can swing streamers, you can, you know, fish for sockeye salmon. You can do the king salmon thing with back trolling. You can fly fish for king salmon during that time. August is kind of like the tail end of sockeye season, but you can also still, you know, trout fish, Dolly Varden fish, the silver start coming in, you can start silver fishing. Um, but then come like late August into September. That's what we would consider the peak time for, you know, fly anglers for sure, because, you know, you can basically catch 70, 80 fish, throwing a bead around spawning sockeye and pink salmon. And, and you could quite honestly hook and land the biggest trout you've ever seen in your life. But also you can, if you're tired of catching trout, you can go motor to a spot and uh, silver fish, you can cast and retrieve for, for silvers. Um, And then into October, very similar, you know, the bee bite kind of starts to die down. You can do some flesh fly fishing for rainbows Mm -hmm. and dollies. Um, Still a lot of silver fishing, even into November. Um, And yet, as you go into the winter, you know, the dollies start to leave the system. You can can fish for rainbows, but, uh, you know, when the silvers are spawning, which can kind of be a fun time. Um, But pretty much that kind of, you know, June till August is kind of that window when a lot of families visit us, you know, the more serious... Know, hardcore anglers kind of know when they want to come they'll come and fish for kings or they'll come and fish in September for trout you know
0: mm-hmm. you're talking about those flesh flies and I and for anybody that hasn't fished them like explain that a little bit so I mean my understand I have fished them on occasion and some pretty big salmon runs where it maybe enters a lake yep. and kind of those fish are starting to break down in the system and they'll just especially those rainbows they'll just hang and wait for that stuff to kind of float by. So what does a flesh fly typically look like and and how do you tie that?
1: Yeah. So there's a, there's a a huge variety of flesh flies. And and I think um, it's probably one of the hardest flies to figure out because it's, you know, it's salmon flesh and and it looks just like salmon flesh, but there's all different kinds of like life stages of salmon flesh. So when it's sockeye salmon season and you've got, you know, thousands of anglers from, you know, 80 miles of river fishing for sockeye. cleaning fish you know for us here we want to throw the fish back in the water so technically the bears can't get them and they're not going to be at dumps and things like that Um, so you'll have carcasses you know bright orange flesh carcasses floating down river and you'll have eggs um, floating down river so it's a really bright flesh Um, so you kind of think about like the life cycle of flesh you go from this kind of bright pink orange all the way to a washed out what they call like a dirty sock Um, and all different sizes you know you can go from like a tiny little you know, pinky nail size flesh fly all the way up to like, gosh, you could, I mean, I've seen guys with almost a foot long piece of, you know, pretend piece of flesh on a flesh fly. Um, And you kind of have to watch the life cycle of kind of what you perceive the life life cycle of that flesh to be in size. So as the sockeye anglers are fishing, you kind of use like a little brighter, you know, flesh fly, kind of like a pinkish orange and even white and, you know, smaller, you know, probably an inch or two. Um, And then you can kind of, You know, once it gets to the point where the salmon are actually dying and their bodies are kind of lodged against log jams and rocks, they'll start to break apart and then it'll be these little tiny pieces of, you know, this kind of white wispy, really washed out. um, Like I said, that dirty sock color kind of flesh fly. And you can tie them, you know, with with rabbit rabbit uh, fur. Um, You can tie them with uh, yarn, some kinds of yarn, even things like, you know, sucker spawns, those kinds of, you know, flies. A uh, marabou. Any yeah, marabou, marabou absolutely. Yeah I, yeah, I tie a lot of marabou. You can kind of mix them as well. So some of the bigger flush flies will have like a, you know, like a, maybe a long rabbit tail with maybe like a, uh you know, an articulated type fly with like a marabou head. You can even mm-hmm. swing them and give them a little bit of action, or you can dead drift them, or even a lot of guys, you know, they'll, they'll hang out around the cleaning tables and start chucking flush in there and, you know, you can, you know, throw, slap a piece of flesh on the surface and all of a sudden you got like a 25, 30 inch rainbow and, in, in, you know, engulfing that, uh, and that, that fly. So the, you know, the uh, cleaning tables are kind of like our, in case of emergency, you know, break glass kind of spots, you know, and, uh, so those can be some of our favorite spots to fish, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of those flesh flies, I would say if people are going to come up, especially if they're going to tie their own flies, really have a variety of sizes and colors. Cause sometimes, you know, even like a nice bright, bright orange piece of flesh it's like gosh this looks just like salmon flesh why aren't they biting and then you throw on like a little smaller a little white fly and it's like all of a sudden you have fish every cast so it's just more about what the fish are conditioned Mm. to kind of seeing you know kind of like just a a hatch almost you know you ever try chartreuse yes yeah so we'll use um trying to think what that color is it's like a uh gosh oh i can think of it it's uh shoot i'll think of it but yeah it's basically a chartreuse color that you'll tie in I, I like to time in you know either by itself or with uh, mixed in with kind of the whites. The yeah, chartreuse mm-hmm. works well for a, a resemblance of uh of a flesh fly for sure.
0: yeah, interesting. Um, if you could change something about fly fishing, is there anything you think we could be doing better differently? Is there anything you'd like to see us do in the past time?
1: Well, I think. Uh you know, I think with any kind of growing sport and of course, fly fishing is the, the, I've heard the biggest growing segment of fishing in general Um, with that growth, with that um, excitement around it um, you know, you get a lot of folks who, you know, maybe don't know how to handle fish um, that, you know, want to pose for pictures, things like that. And I totally understand it. I actually want to make a YouTube video about like how to handle fish and take pictures of them. Um, You know, yeah i think just fish handling in general i think especially in, in rivers like ours where it's all wild fish and we're not really keeping any trout you know we, we may let some you know especially you know we let the kings go and stuff like that i think fish handling is probably the the hardest thing to learn um but i think with people being so eager about getting those fish pictures sometimes i think the the, the sacrifice is made you know sort of unintentionally to the fish of like well I want this picture and if the fish flops around or if I have them out of the water a little too long, it's okay. And it's not like a conscious, like, you know, intentional malicious thing. But I think that sometimes wanting to get that shot or wanting to get that, you know, that, that indelible picture or that memory snapped, I think can kind of oftentimes come at the expense of fish. And I think that that's probably the most, one of the most important things that I think needs to be kind of just, if, if you're new to the sport, I think that's probably one of the first areas I would, I would look at is like, okay, how do I do this and how do I take pictures of fish and, and show off my success and, and share that success um, without, you know, damaging the fish and also two things like barbless hooks and all, you know, kind of minimizing your impact on the actual, the fish. So I guess if that's, that's one thing yeah. I would, would change.
0: Yeah. The barbless hooks is huge, but I, you hit it on the head. Cause I think let's face it. I, Taking a fish out of water, taking a picture is, is, akin to sticking somebody under the water and taking a picture. They, they, yep. they don't do too well out of water. And yep. I know whenever I see somebody take a picture or even if I'm doing it myself, I try to be conscious of it. I really do. And I think that even gets harder when it's the fish of a lifetime and you're yep. on these big trips, you know, yep. and you're like, geez, I really need to capture this. Yep. Yep. But how do you do it right? You know, I notice you're a big keep them wet guy.
1: Yeah. And you know what I've kind of, the progression for me is like, and it's probably just like the progression is for a lot of people, you know, you might post a picture and people are like, Oh geez, you handle a fish like that. And it's like, no one's ever said that to me, but you start to kind of like, you know, look around the internet and you kind of see who gets bullied and then you start to kind of like adjust how you hold fish. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I go probably the, the thing that's helped me the most in trying to capture fish pictures. And this is something that I think people should do. You know, I started off with a GoPro. Now I've got like one of those DJI, Osmo actions, you know, basically a GoPro, but I think GoPros on a little tripod with a little floaty thing is probably the, if you want to t- take pictures of fish, probably, especially if you're going to fish by yourself, probably the best and easiest way to capture a fish picture. So on my boat, you know, I will, you know, have the fish in the nets in the water. I will, you know, basically have my, my camera set on, on, you know, they'll take a picture every two or three seconds. And as soon as I hit that button, I have no pressure. I can keep the fish in the water, let it breathe, relax, get people Mm -hmm. kind of staged for the picture. And then the pictures are being taken. Everyone's cool. Take a picture, put it back in the water. And it's one, two, three, picture, picture, picture. Fish is back in the water. Um, When I'm by myself, I'll have that kind of tucked in my waders. I catch a fish and I've got it in the water. I'll just set that tripod up. The fish is still in the water and I'll hit that button. And however I want to pose with that fish, I pose, take pictures. It's in the water or even up a little bit. And it takes, you know, you could you could come home from a a, a a fishing trip and have 10 pictures of one fish, and it might have taken you less than 20 seconds of, you know, picking the fish up one, two, three, putting it back in the water, pick it up one, two, three, and you you got a bunch of pictures, you can pick your favorite one, and that fish has had minimal handling and minimal stress and been in the water most of the time. Um, but I think that's probably something that should be really standard for people. Like I said, a little little mini tripod, a GoPro or an action camera, set it on like a, you know, to basically a time-lapse where it'll take a picture every two, three seconds and you can just have a nice bank of pictures. And, uh, and yeah, that's probably the easiest, easiest thing. Cause a lot of times, you know, especially when I'm fishing with, with clients, I'll, you know, have a, you know, a fish in the net and they're fumbling with their camera and they're like, you know, Jimmy wants to hold it. And it's like, well, you know, then mom's fumbling with the camera and the fish is being held. It's held, it's held. And I'm just sitting there like throw it in the water, throw it in the water. So I just eliminated that. I said, Hey, I'll take the pictures you know, leave it in the water. Here you go. One, two, three, picture, 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 put it back in the water. And then I'll send them to you at the end of the day. I think that's probably, probably the best, best thing we could do for the fish. If you want to take pictures of them.
0: Are you living your dream right now? Like, in other words, is this the best job you have ever had?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, It combines kind of, um, everything that I've done in my life, you know, having my own business, working with people, being a teacher, um, you know, building a business on the side. I mean, it kind of scratches every itch that you can, you can think of, you know, you're, 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 you're kind of all, you know, autonomous, you know, no one's telling you what to do. You can run your business how you want. You can um, you know, I can work in my boxers on the computer and and look professional still online. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, talking to people about, you know, coming up to Alaska, it's their first time ever. They're really excited and you can kind of share in that excitement and then meeting people on the water, you know, getting them all in waders and getting them all pumped up. And they're, you know, bright eyed and wide eyed and looking around at the mountains and just in awe. And they're like, man, I don't even need to catch a fish, you know. And it's like, well, <laughs> put some pressure on me, will you? Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I think just being able to share those experiences and, uh, you know, just but also to be able to be kind of an advocate for the river um, and defender of the river. I mean, that's such a cool thing. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's just a neat, neat position to be in for sure. Are you still doing a lot of writing? Yeah. So I kind of go up and down with writing. Um, my, I do some writing for some blogs. I've done some magazine stuff, done some, uh, you know, you know, articles on uh, other people's sites and things like that. I really, really enjoy writing. Um, I have just put so much on my plate as far as trying to master all these different marketing things in the website and all kinds of stuff that I've kind of spread myself a little bit thin. Um, but if I had my druthers, I think I would be writing, you know, every day if I could, just to kind of basically it's for me, it's got a way to kind of organize my thoughts. Like what do I really think about this? You know, like, you know, what do I really think about this in fly fishing? What, you know, and I think it helps me organize my thoughts and really understand, you know, what my, you know, position might be on things or what I really think about something or, but it also might help me teach something a little bit better. So, so yeah, mm. writing for sure.
0: I I know that, uh, you know, basically fishing guides in Alaska has been declared an essential service, right? Am I, am I correct in that? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the good news, but it, in this downtime, obviously, uh, the water hasn't really opened up to where you want it to be yet, but I'm sure it's getting darn close. Now we're in uh, early May, by the time this airs, I'm sure you'll be, You'll be fishing every single day. Um, Talk to what you've been up to in in the last little bit. Have you been doing lots of tying, lots of social media stuff, working on the website? How have you been spending your time this winter?
1: Yeah, a lot of it has been kind of strategizing, you know, how we're going to manage all of this, you know, this pandemic as far as like from a business aspect, from a future aspect. Um, So our first, our number one priority was to make sure that we were financially able to basically refund a lot of people because we've probably had close to 30 canceled trips because of you know they were early season trips and whatnot so to kind of be able to absorb that blow um and then to really try to plan out like okay from the time this hits till the time people are ready to fish what do we have to do as far as like when that phone when people start looking for trips how are we going to make sure that we're out in front of them so working on the website doing social media stuff organizing some of our YouTube stuff, um, working with local businesses to try to, you know, drum up some, some kind of a, you know, affiliate type business from them um, mm-hmm. and really just strategizing. You know, we did hire another guy this year, Mike, who is a different Mike, but a uh, really, really awesome guy. Um, lots of experience, super fun guy. Um, he's kind of in a position where he knows he's not going to have a whole lot of trips this year, um, but we're really looking forward to getting him on the water this year. And uh, so we bought another boat you know, kind of getting that prepared, you know, going through all the guide paperwork, making sure that we've got all of our guide stuff in order insurances and things like that and licenses. You know, I've got the boat kind of boats kind of stripped down. I've got one up in Anchorage getting the motor worked on my I have a power drifter and then I've got a couple of drift boats just kind of getting them polished up. Um, But really, I think our big thing is just preparing for the big rush, whether it be this summer or you know, the people in the fall that are going to want to book for the fall and, or the, the following year, we really feel like next year at the very least is going to be gigantic for, for Alaska and for fishing in Alaska. So we really want to make sure that we're, we're up to date on our website. We're, we're up to speed on, you know, our guide situation, um, that kind of stuff. So we're really trying to look, look forward and try not to dwell on the, the current situation, even though, you know, <laughs> even though it's kind of, kind of been difficult to deal with, um, you know, mm-hmm. Well,
0: you know what—that's—that's that's honest, and we're—we're we're all dealing with it best we can. But I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm so glad that you guys are, are up and running, and I know you're going to have an amazing season. I got to thank Ron Chiro out of uh, Wisconsin for—he uh, shot me an email, um, and said i enjoying the podcast, and look—you got to look up Dave Lisi at uh, Cooper Landing fishing guide and i'm so glad i did dave would you um be so kind as to throw out all your details so somebody wants to book a trip with you in cooper landing alaska how do they go about that what's the best way to find you
1: yeah well first i want to say thanks for having me i'm sure we'll be able to exchange that after but uh yeah that was that was great um as far as you know how you can get uh, in touch with us the easiest way is right on our website it's just uh cooper landing fishing com. Uh, we have on easy online booking right there so uh you know, real easy, you, can, you know, can pick the trip you want, the date you want, the time you want, you know, book online. Um, I will send you an email to, to let you know that you didn't just send it off to somewhere in, in, in uh, Africa, um, that you're actually gonna have a fishing trip and that we're gonna, you know, get you set up. Um, and, you know, we also have YouTube. So we got some uh, YouTube videos out there, some fly tying, some, you know, some two-handed spay casting stuff um, and, you know, some little short, short film type things course on facebook uh a little bit of instagram Um, but yeah and then if anyone wants to call they can certainly call or text or email um but yeah our website's probably the easiest easiest way to get a hold of us
0: perfect well have a great season on the water and uh i wish you all the best and, and thanks so much for taking the time tonight dave
1: yeah mark i can't say thank you enough i really appreciate
0: the time You've been listening tonight uh, to a chat with Dave Lisi, a Cooper Landing Fishing Guide out of Cooper Landing, Alaska. They specialize in the Kenai River.
1: The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by FlyCrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.